Dr. Xavier Reese and the ever-extending arm of love. No one can justify a sinner but God. No one can forgive a sinner but God. No one can take a sinner from being under God's wrath and leading them to be led by the Spirit of God. No one. No one can make us sons and heirs of God but God. He is for me, not against me. If God is for us, it makes no difference who is against us. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Do you ever feel all alone, forgotten, neglected, and unloved? Well, as a child of God, this isn't even possible. Yes, it's true, those around you may treat you badly, but you will never be neglected by your ever-loving Father. Pastor Xavier takes us to a powerful section in the book of Romans for today's encouraging lesson, The Abounding Love of God. The Apostle Paul, as you know, has brought the sinner a long way from being a depraved and rebellious enemy of God to being justified in Christ Jesus, pronouncing him uncondemned. We and all other sinners are saved by believing the promises of God. In the provisions of Jesus Christ, which was motivated by the love of God, John 3.16. This love provision has made us sons and daughters of God, adopted heirs of God, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ to be led to live by the Holy Spirit. This is the context of what we're going to look at. Put it in all of chapter 8, okay? Very important. So Paul finalizes this peak experience of the Christian by declaring that not only is there no condemnation, no frustration, but there will be no separation from the love of God. Keep in mind the context to those who walk after the Spirit, not after the flesh, Romans 8, 1 through 4. This is all in the drop. Otherwise, you're back in chapter 7. Willful defeat, Okay. So let me read here as we look at the efficiency of God's love from three perspectives. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The efficiency of God's love is given to us here from three perspectives. First, we have the proclamation of God's love, verse 31 to 35. Second, the perspective through God's love in verse 36 and 37. And then thirdly, the power of God's love, 38 and 39. The proclamation of God's love comes first, verse 31 through 35. Notice in verse 31, God is our defense. 
The question is regarding all God has done for the sinner. What should we say to these things? The fact that we are justified in Christ. Jesus says there's no condemnation to that individual. The fact that now we are able to um, meet the requirements of the law as we walk in the spirit. The fact that we will be raised at the resurrection. The fact that we are led by the spirit of God who bears witness with our spirit regarding our sonship and our heirship. The fact that the present sufferings are not to be compared to the future glory. The fact that the entire creation is groaning to be redeemed. The fact that the Holy Spirit intercedes in prayer for us. The fact that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. The fact that God foreknew and predestined us to be conformant to the image of his son. The fact that whom he predestinated, then he also called, whom he called, then he justified, whom he justified, then he also glorified. What should we say to these things? Amazing grace. That's all you can say. <laughs> now notice the answer is given in a rhetorical question. It implies only one obvious answer. Though it is not stated, this is an answer. No one, no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can justify a sinner but God. No one can forgive a sinner but God. No one can take a sinner from being under God's wrath and leading them to be led by the Spirit of God. No one. No one can make us sons and heirs of God but God. No one is omnipotent present, all-present, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, only God. He is for me, not against me. If God is for us, it makes no difference who is against us. Even though Satan, the world and our flesh is constantly working against us, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. 1 John 4, 4. That's a great promise. Now, notice that God is also our benevolent provider. Look at verse 32. God gave his best, his son, to save us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He gave his son as evidence of his love for us, sinners. The father incurred the cross, his son was given by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God in Acts 2, 23, before the foundations of the world. The Father made a son a curse for us, Galatians 3, 13 says. He gave a son as a very sin bearer for sinners. Uh, he made him the propitiation, that payment which satisfied the wrath and demands of God in 1 John 2, 2. Not only for us, listen to the rest of the verse, but for the whole world. Us as the believers, the world or those that still aren't saved. The Father substituted His Son for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, God will supply all that is needed throughout salvation. It's premised on what He did first. How shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Now, 
Notice the question is rhetorical once again. And he runs through a whole series of these. It has only one answer that is again implied, but not stated. Yes, of course he will give us all things. Having done the most difficult to make the provisions for a sinner to be saved, to save the sinner, how much more now? The teaching is from the past to the present. Before the cross, there was the debt of sin needed to be paid. After the cross, the debt was paid. Notice the teaching is also from the transaction of love that brought about salvation to all who will be needed for ongoing transformation. So the love provided the salvation. Now how much more all the need for transformation unto glorification. God is the one that's sufficient for all this. The benefits of salvation come through Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. He's going to say it many, many times. The amount of benefit that Jesus will bestow upon the believer, the heir of salvation, is all things. So our confidence is in him and what he has done, not in ourselves. Then he tells us that God is our judge, not other people. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And the question again, being rhetorical with an implied answer, no one. The question is in view of our past sins. Now you go tell some of your friends you used to hang out and party with and say, hey, listen, I'm saved, man. All I ever did, I'm, I'm, I'm whiter than snow. They go, dude, I was there. They should put you in jail. And what they're saying is true from their perspective because they don't know Jesus. They don't know that he's transformed you, that he's died for you. The phrase being, bringing a charge, means to bring an accusation against that person. And the charge is in the future tense regarding the sinner's past sins. So as I say, you speak to somebody who you were with in the past, and they're in the present. I say, hey, dude, oh, you're guilty. Notice the one being charged is identified as one of God's elect. The word Elect, eclectos, chosen one. It's important to determine the context. The context will determine whether it's a Christian or the Jew. Matthew 24, just one of the passages, speaks about the elect, for the elect's sake, meaning the Jew. This is the Christian, so the context is very important. The one chosen is based on God's foreknowledge. We've seen this. Predestined to be conformant to the image of his son, but never at the violation of man's free will, nor predetermining others to go to hell. We reject that. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Ephesians 1, 5 and 11. 1 Peter 1, 2 speaks about the predestination, the election. God's choosing. It has been said that predestination and free will are two parallel lines that there's no way we can understand how they cross on this side of heaven. But once we get to heaven, we'll see how they cross. Some people have a difficult time. They say, well, that's not fair. What if I'm not predestined? Well, my question to you is, what makes you think you're not predestined? Well, I haven't come. Well, if you haven't come, well, that's your fault. But that's not fair. Well, then come. (laughs) You see, you can't fault God because he died for whosoever. Are you a whosoever? You qualify. (laughs) Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 is great. It says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His predestination, his election is always based on foreknowledge. Foreknowledge in the Greek simply means knowledge beforehand. I can't define it any other way. If you're a Calvinist, you define it completely different, but it's wrong. If I try to define it different than what the word means, then I'm trying to define it and figure out and think the way God would think. And since you're not God, you're going to come with a stupid answer. Wrong. I mean, you'd be pretty lame if you knew what horse was going to win at Santa Anita and you go bet on the loser, right? Give God a break. God knows everything. Notice the impossibility of the charge is stated. The answer is that if God... It is God who justifies, and we've gone through this word before, justify means acquitted of all the wrongdoing. This is the 15th and the last time it's found in the book of Romans. The justification is based on the faith provision of God the Father through his son Jesus Christ. That was the theme in the opening chapter, chapter 1, verse 16 through 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. The Jew first entered the Greek, for therein is the power of God revealed from from faith to faith, the just shall live by faith, according to Habakkuk 2.4. That's it. The sinner simply believes by faith in the promised provision of God in Jesus Christ. The sinner is transformed into a saint, being positionally in Christ, trusting what he has done. I simply believe as Abraham believed. He also tells us that God is our intercessor. This is all out of his love. Look at 34. The question regards someone pronouncing a verdict of deserved punishment. Who is he who condemns? And the word condemns means to judge a person worthy of a verdict declaring just punishment. And the answer again is rhetorical and it's implied. No one. You see, people can look at you and remember what you did. You can think back and remember what you did. And yet, by looking at the deeds without the blood of Jesus, rightly, you deserve punishment, and so do I. But what makes the difference is the blood of Jesus Christ and my repentance towards my lifestyle. That makes all the difference in the world. The answer provides the complete source of our acquittal. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So Christ died in our place, as we've seen, a substitute. Further, Christ is risen out from the dead, evident of the accepted payment. The payment was at the cross. The receipt is the resurrection. God honored him. And Christ is at the right hand of God, the place of privilege and power. And he's sitting. He's not like the high priest walking around. In the Old Testament, there was no chair in the holy or the most holy. There was always work to be done. Jesus is sitting. He said it from the cross. It is finished. And notice Christ also makes intercession for us on our behalf. Not against us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, We are to come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. Any time of the day. Any time. My little children, if you stumble, if you fall, you have an advocate for the for defense, Jesus Christ the righteous, the Lord for the defense, 1 John 2, 1. 
He's there for us. Now notice also, God is our faithful and reliable friend. Look at verse 35. The question again being rhetorical with an implied answer. No person. Who shall separate from the love of God? No person. There is no one that can separate me from the love of God. The word separate means to divide or to cause me to depart. The forces from without, from the outside. The attempt is by one that is without to entice, to convince, or deceive, or to pull away. Only I can separate myself from the love of God by not yielding, depending on it. There is no woman that can take me from my wife, Trudy. No woman in the world. I have to give permission. Simple. Simple. When I don't yield to love, I end up in Romans 7 again, right? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Total defeat. The love of God was his motive for saving us by sending his son, John 3.16. The love of God cannot and could not save us alone. It was his provision, his death, and his blood that saved us. The love of God was the motive behind it. Your son and daughter are rebellious. They're in the world. They're doing their thing. Your love for them can't save them. They have to realize their condition and take the provisions. But your love can't save them. But your love is there to give them the provisions of repentance. You understand? So love is the motive. But love alone can't do it. It is our faith in the atoning work of Jesus Christ that saves us. Notice the love of Christ is his outpouring care for us as adopted sons and daughters. The word love, as you know, is agape love, that divine love that is so far different than us. Our love is so conditional. You know, I love you till, you know, you don't look young anymore. I love you until this or that. It's all conditional. But God loved us while we were yet sinners. The love of God withholds nothing that is good for us. In fact, his love is always the initiatory love. First uh, John four nineteen says, he first loved us, therefore we love him. You understand? And his love, he initiated for us. He didn't just speak about it. He, he, he backed it up with actions and words. He sent his son. And then he provided salvation through his son. Now notice the second question, again, rhetorical, as if certain circumstances and situations could separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? The answer again is no. Not one. And you can add to the list. The love of Christ is sufficient for all that will ever come into your life and mine. He has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness and how to escape the corruption of the world. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4. A divine nature. Wow. Everything that ever will come into my life, God will allow into my life, He is sufficient if I look to Him, if I turn to Him. The potential of God's agape love is immeasurable, unquenchable, inexhaustible. 
Ephesians 3, 18 and 19 says that you might know the length, the width, the depth of God's love that surpasses all understanding. Hmm. The possible things in life are given to us in the long list here. Shall tribulation, meaning pressing, crushing, resulting affliction and anguish? No. Shall distress, narrowness of place, resulting in stress and anxiety? No. Shall persecution, running towards to make another flee in order to catch that person and inflict pain and suffering? No. Shall famine, scarcity of food, being destitute? No. Shall nakedness, having no clothing to cover your body? No. Shall peril, that atmosphere that brings danger, impossible injury, and loss of life? No. Shall sword, that small knife-like sword that was hand-to-hand combat, close combat, opposed to the big thrashing sword for judgment? No. None of these things can separate from the love of God if I look to him, if I depend upon him. And history has made that very, very, very clear. Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. It's so simple a child can understand, he says, yet it's condensed into deep and marvelous truths of redemption in these few pugnant words. Listen to it. God, the greatest lover, so loved the greatest degree, the world the greatest number, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever the greatest invitation believeth the greatest simplicity, in him the greatest person, should not perish the greatest deliverance, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, everlasting life, the greatest possession. (laughs) What are you going to say to those things, ladies and gentlemen? Wow. We at Calvary Chapel believe that man is depraved. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin nature is death, Romans 3.23 and 6.23. We at Calvary Chapel believe God predestined us to adoption from the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4 through 6. We at Calvary Chapel believe in man's free will to be saved and Whosoever wills can take of the waters of life freely, not just the select few, Revelation twenty two seventeen. We at Calvary Chapel believe we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience in the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1, 2. We at Calvary Chapel believe Christians are predestined to be conformed into the image of God being predestined, called, justified, and glorified, Romans 8, 29, and 30. We at Calvary Chapel believe that we are saved by grace through faith. That's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We at Calvary Chapel believe that Jesus Christ made atonement by his death and resurrection for our sins for the entire world, forgiving us and redeeming us by his blood, 1 Peter 1, 19. But what we don't believe is that God only died for a chosen few 
while damning the majority to hell. We do not believe that. Whosoever is whosoever. The world is the world. Do not stick the elect to interpret the world. It's dishonest. This is the proclamation of God's love. What can you say about that? <laughs> Pastor Xavier Reese, reminding us that God's love is available to all. More simple truths drawn from our study series of the Book of Romans. Now you can hear this message again if you like online anytime by selecting today's date under the radio tab at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But you can also request a CD copy of this timely study titled The Abounding Love of God. It's available for only $4. And this CD includes the complete message as it was originally delivered. Once again, the title to ask for is The Abounding Love of God, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Again, that's Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California, www.calvarychapelpasadena.com.